Welcome to FIA Speaks, a podcast at the centre of the futures, options and listed derivatives markets and the interesting people who work in them, run exchanges and regulate this industry. FIA's mission is to support open, transparent and competitive markets, protect and enhance the integrity of the financial system and promote high standards of professional conduct. Please note we have a lengthy disclaimer that I encourage you to listen to or read at FIA.org. But in short, this podcast is meant to be informative about this industry and should not be relied on for investment advice. And now, here's your host, FIA President and CEO, Walt Lucan. Welcome to FIA Speaks, a global markets podcast. This podcast is sponsored by SmartStream. Trust your data, accelerate your future potential. More at smartstream-stp.com. This podcast and the two that follow are interviews with the inductees to the FIA Futures Hall of Fame for 2021. FIA honors significant people in our industry with a Hall of Fame induction at our annual Boca Conference. FIA established the Hall of Fame in 2005 to commemorate our 50th anniversary and to celebrate the many people who contributed their time, talent, and passion to building our industry. Since then, we have inducted over 150 individuals into the Hall of Fame, including industry executives, policymakers, and even a Speaker of the House. Inductees are chosen by a distinguished panel of global industry executives based on their significant lifetime contributions to our industry and the financial markets. All Hall of Fame members come from various backgrounds, experiences, and regions, But one thing that unites them is their passionate determination to build strong, healthy, safe, and competitive markets. For this, we owe all of them our gratitude. We hope you will like these interviews with our Hall of Fame class for 2021. Well, welcome everyone to BOCA 2021. And I am thrilled to have uh, Brooksley Bourne, a new inductee to the Futures Industry Hall of Fame here today. Uh, we're so pleased to honor her at the Futures Industry Association. So congratulations, Brooksley, for the award, and uh, thank you for everything you've contributed to our industry. Thank you so much, uh, Walt. I'm delighted and thrilled to be a part of your Hall of Fame and very honored that you asked me to join it. Well, let's start, um, you know, you have such an amazing career beyond our industry, um, but tell us a little bit about, you know, your career leading up to getting into um, our industry as chair of the CFTC and how you began um, in our industry. Well, in the mid-1970s, I was a partner at Arnold & Porter, the law firm that I spent most of my career with. At the time that the 1974 Commodity Exchange Act was adopted, and that established the CFTC, and it also changed the federal regulation of derivatives in some significant ways. Up until then, the Agriculture Department had regulated futures in domestic agricultural products only. And suddenly, with the adoption of the new statute, federal regulation under the CFTC extended to international products as well, metals, energy, coffee, uh, sugar, and cocoa, among others. And um, the way I started my practice in derivatives was that the London Commodity Exchange and its clearinghouse, ICCH, came to us at Arnold and Porter and wanted to understand the scope of the regulation uh, by the CFTC under the new act and to understand the way it was going to impact the international markets that they too had futures contracts in. Um, And from there, our practice grew. I became the head of the derivatives practice at the firm. 
and did participated for many clients in CFTC rulemaking, in reauthorization of the act by Congress, in um, enforcement proceedings, and also in court litigation. Um, so that's how I started. And I've been practicing for 20 years and a little more by the time I was nominated to be chair of the CFTC by President Clinton. And, and walk us through how that came about. I mean, it's always amazing. It's a it's a bit of a black box how people get <laughs> nominated to those kinds of positions. But clearly, you are a prominent attorney in that space. And um, but how did that come about to be nominated as chair? Well, Mary Shapiro had been chair and was uh, decided to leave one year into her term, which was five years, to um, go to NASD regulatory and to head it up. And I got a call one day from the Treasury Department, from a, one of the officials there, asking me if I would have any interest. And uh, I hesitated because I love private practice, but I'd always wanted to do some civic public service. And um, so uh, having thought it over, I thought this would be a perfect way to give back to our society. Well, there must be several people throughout your career that you saw as role models or mentors. Um, is, is there any that stand out to you um, related to our industry or even beyond our industry that that were uh, people that you looked up to and helped you along with your career? Well, I admire uh, I admired a lot of uh, people in the industry and. Uh, I'm not sure they acted as mentors, but uh, it, I thought that they were playing a really important role in the industry. One that comes to mind is Leo Malamud, who uh, was a lawyer as well as a executive in the financial uh, industry and had made a fabulous contribution to the financial world and to um, our economy uh, and the world economy by helping to develop financial futures, which uh, extended the ability to um, hedge risk in a very meaningful new way. Uh, another person I admired, also a lawyer, was Philip McBride Johnson, one of my predecessors as chair of the CFTC, who had been before and after uh, his uh, service on the CFTC, a outstanding derivatives lawyer and a scholar who wrote the first legal treatise about derivatives law. Um, I thought he fully understood the role of the CFTC and his role of chair to implement and enforce the law as adopted by Congress. And he also did some very special things like uh, negotiate the Shad Johnson Accord that permitted uh, um, federal regulation of stock index futures. Well, let me ask you about your achievements. Um, you're, you were such a pioneer in taking on that role and, you know, really being uh, the foresight to, to say that the over-the-counter derivatives need some form of regulation. And you put out a concept release challenging, I think, sort of the common thinking at the time. Uh, so tell me a little bit of what during that period of time stands out as you know, what you are most proud of. Um, you know, I know the Kennedy School has recognized you with its its profiles and courage um, for your efforts to stand up uh, to those who, who thought they shouldn't be regulated. 
but tell us a little bit of how how you thought about your achievements during that period of time. Well, I felt that I was uh, essentially uh, fulfilling my duty as chair of the CFTC to alert Congress and the Clinton administration and the public about concerns uh, about the unregulated and rapidly expanding, exponentially growing over-the-counter derivatives market. Um, That market had been deregulated uh, by CFTC uh, action uh, three years earlier. That action exempted uh, swaps from the exchange trading requirement of the act. And uh, by the time I got to the CFTC, there had been tremendous growth. Uh, There had also been some fraud by a major over-the-counter derivatives dealer, Bankers Trust, which defrauded some of its very largest customers. Uh, Over-the-counter derivatives had been used in a manipulative scheme by Sumitomo Corporation of Japan, which uh, tried to corner the world copper markets. The CFTC had retained fraud and manipulation jurisdiction over the market, but I found uh, in exploring this with the staff that we really didn't have any tools to investigate, to, we didn't even have uh, reporting or record keeping requirements. Beyond that, um, from information provided by the staff, I became, and the rest of the commissioners did too, concerned about the rapid growth and the losses, massive losses from speculation that were occurring by big institutions like Orange County, California, which went to bankrupt because of speculation in interest rate uh, uh, over-the-counter derivatives uh, with public money, with taxpayer money. Uh, So there were totally inappropriate uses of uh, the market occurring with disastrous results. I also realized that the um, instruments created potential counterparty credit risk and were establishing a network of interconnections among all our largest uh, bank holding companies and investment banks, which were acting as the -the over-the-counter derivatives market, such that if one financial entity began to uh, suffer uh, financial difficulties, it had the potential of spreading uh, throughout the financial system And um, indeed, during my uh, concerns and uh, publicity, publication of those concerns to Congress and the industry through a concept release, we issued asking questions about whether the industry needed to be able to have clearing houses, whether there should be reporting and record keeping requirements, et cetera. Uh, My fears seem to be validated by the collapse of an extremely large hedge fund, the long-term capital management, which the Federal Reserve Board uh, determined would potentially impact the financial system as a whole and which uh, 
the Federal Reserve Board orchestrated a bailout for by getting the largest over-the-counter derivatives dealers to take it over. So um, I thought it very important and part of my basic job as the uh, chair of the CFTC to let people know these risks. Now, the GAO had earlier issued a report that highlighted some of these risks too, and it gone to Congress. Uh, Charles Bauscher was then the head of uh, GAO and uh, sounded warning. So I wasn't the first person, and the, but the, um, the decision was by the administration and by Congress not to take any action. And in fact, with the Commodity Futures Modernization Act of 2000, the um, over-the-counter derivatives market was even further deregulated. And the upshot was that uh, unregulated over-the-counter derivatives played a major role in the financial crisis in 2007 and 2008. Well, and that um, ultimately led to Dodd-Frank and the things that you were asking questions about and predicting um, you know, during your tenure as chair uh, ended up being implemented as part of Dodd-Frank of clearing OTC derivatives. And uh, you know, recently within the last year, we went through a very significant volatility around the economic shutdown related to COVID-19 and the system worked pretty well. There weren't huge yeah. counterparty defaults and so the, what you had envisioned um, actually appears to be working now in practice. So again, what a visionary you had at the time to see that. And um, the system has evolved accordingly. So congratulations. Well, I was delighted that uh, Dodd-Frank was adopted and that it's been implemented uh, by the CFTC. And I think that this has created a much safer market. Agreed. Agreed. Well, as you look back on your career, um, obviously you have um, you've also um, you know nurtured several other careers, and I just think of several that come to mind: the Jeff Aronows, the the Dan Waldmans, uh, the folks that I know and continue to work in our industry. But if you were advising a young person coming in uh, to the workforce that want is interested in our industry. Uh, in general, financial services, what advice would you give that young person? Well, <clears throat> I think I would start by telling the young person to remember that they are entering the financial services industry, that it is a service industry. It contributes enormously and it, to our society and is really a necessary. Uh, function and plays a necessary role in allowing our economy to work. And that means that people entering the, the, the industry have a significant responsibility to make sure that it is a service industry. We have laws and regulations to protect customers, to protect uh, the financial system, to protect the economy, and to protect the public as a whole. Uh, and I would urge a young person to think in the long term, to realize his or her responsibility to uh, foster the interests of the clients and customers, to um, not put short-term profits ahead of uh, his or her long-term reputation in the industry. They should be aware of the rules that apply to them and rigorously comply with them. Well, 
Brooksley, those are great words of, of wisdom. We want to uh, thank you so much for everything you've contributed to our industry, the foresight, the vision, um, and congratulations on being one of our inductees to the 2021 Futures Industry Hall of Fame. Thank you. I'm greatly honored. Well, welcome, Jim Newsom, to the 2021 Futures Industry Hall of Fame class. We're just thrilled that you're a part of it. So thank you for being here. Well, thank you very much, Walt. It's, uh, it's a great honor to be included. I appreciate it. Well, let's start from the beginning. Um, you know, this is a strange industry that we're in, um, a, a nuanced and complicated industry. But how did you know somebody from Florida and Mississippi get to the derivatives industry? Well, it was it was interesting. I was at the Mississippi Catawans Association and spending a lot of time in in DC. And uh, Mark Keenum, whom we all know, and Senator Cochran called one day and said they were looking for somebody to uh, to go to the CFTC. And I said, well, give me some time to think about it and come up with some recommendations. And uh, uh, which I did. But then Mark said, well, dummy, you know, we're, we're really want you to do it. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, you know, I, I enjoy going to Washington. Uh, I had testified a couple of times and I said, I enjoy that, but I've never thought about living up there. And uh, at the end of the day, they, they twisted my arm and, and uh, uh, I came to, came to DC. So it, it, was, uh, it was quite the path to, to get there. As you know, who held me in the Senate uh, prepared for the, for the hearing, but uh, it wasn't something that I really intended to do but it just happened to work out that way. Well, in your career has been so impactful on, on many, but you, you started as a commissioner, um, then chairman, uh, and helped to implement the Commodity Futures Modernization Act, and then went on to, to run NYMEX um, and help it through its public offering, as well as its merger with CME. And then, you know, in a, its own right, started your own firm, uh, Delta Strategies, which is really helping customers and clients in our industry succeed. But as you look back, are, are there specific mentors or role models in that expansive career that stand out for you? Uh, yes, there are. Uh, probably Mark Enum would be at the top of the list of which you know Mark, he's been president of Mississippi State now for, I guess, the last dozen years doing an outstanding job. Uh, but he and Senator Cochran in the early days were, were big mentors of mine. Um, John Damgard, uh, your predecessor, was a, was, a, uh, was a big key, I think, and... and uh, you know, what I did and, and how I tried to do it. Uh, now I recognize FIA wasn't, uh, uh, didn't come out on top and, and a number of the big things that we were involved in at the commission at the time. But uh, uh, nonetheless, John, I thought still is an outstanding individual and somebody that I've looked up to for a long time. Well, and as you look back at, at the many achievements throughout your career, are there any that stand out as some things that you're most proud of? And there, there's so numerous in my mind, too. It's hard to pick one. And I'm just curious, is there, is there one thing in your career that really uh, jumps out to you? Well, I think implementation of the Commodity Futures Modernization Act would be the first. And, of course, I was, uh, I was acting chair at the time and didn't know if I was going to become the chairman. So we, we dove into implementation of the CFMA and Congress had passed it so overwhelmingly that I was uh, convinced that we were going to follow Congress's lead in how we implemented the act and tried to do so. And I think, I think accomplished that. Um, but that, that would be first. And really the first year I was at the commission, 
that was what we concentrated on, and that's what we we focused on and did. Uh, the Urex application uh, for membership was another uh, key thing. It wasn't always great, uh, but uh, you know there were there were lots of uh, arguments between Chicago and and Urex and. And I think I got bruises from both sides, and I know you did too, when you came to the commission as well, Walt. But uh, you know, I thought we did uh, a good job of analyzing, you know, what they had submitted, and uh, and approving their application within the time frame we were supposed to. But it was still, uh, you know, the the CME or the Chicago exchanges called the hearing, and. Uh, in the house and there were lots of things that we had to do to to um to prepare to vote for your ex that we wouldn't normally have to do uh but uh but but that was one and then the last was probably the staff pay issue uh it was something that uh i considered uh important and I know that uh, uh, Madge, our executive director and her team, they appreciated it. Uh, never thought we would get it done, but the stars kind of lined up with, with Senator Cochran and Saxby Chambliss and Jerry Moran in their spots. And uh, we were able to get that done. So I would say those three things were probably the the three biggest things I was able to do when we were there. And if I could just ask you one more question in regards to one of your achievements, one that comes to my mind is your leadership during 9-11, during the, the crisis of 9-11. Can you walk through a little bit of, of where you were when that happened and you know what you had to do in order to keep the CFTC staff together and accounted for during that very difficult time? Well, and that, that's a good point, Walt, uh, that I really hadn't thought of. But, you know, I lived over on Arlington Ridge Road and was driving into the office, and it was a clear, sunny, beautiful day. And I heard on the radio about the first plane flying into the towers, and it was expected then, at least on the radio, that it was a small plane. Uh, and... Uh, but I still, I, I, I kind of looked up at the sky and I thought, who in the hell could fly into the, to the towers today? And then uh, I went by the Pentagon where the plane ended up flying into the Pentagon, which was about an hour later, headed to the office. And uh, Scott Parsons, my chief of staff, called and he said, look, I don't know what's going on. But when you get to the office, you need to be strong and, and come right up to your office. So I did. And uh, we were all around the TV watching what was going on. And uh, Harvey Pitt, who was chairman of the SEC, called. And his question was, Jim, what's going on? And I'm like, well, Harvey, I don't know. I'm watching the TV like you probably are. And... Uh, uh, Chairman Greenspan and um, uh, Secretary Rubin, I think it was. Was it Rubin? No, it was uh, O'Neill. Paul O'Neill was secretary at the time, and uh, they were both traveling. And uh, Harvey said, "I'll get in touch with them. What time can we talk?" And we set a time, and then got on the phone with. Uh, with Chairman Greenspan and Secretary O'Neill. And Chairman Greenspan basically just took over the conversation at the time. And he was to, he was most interested in the Bank of New York and what was going on with the bank and their ability to wire funds to the other banks. And uh, while we were talking, uh, an operator um, interrupted and said, gentlemen, can you hold for the president? And uh, President Bush got off, and he was still on Air Force One because they weren't sure where to take him at the time. But he he kind of gave us a background of what was going on, said we had been attacked. It was by terrorists. 
and as much of the attack was on our financial system as anything. And his uh, direction to us was to get the exchanges back up and operating as quickly as possible. So that was on a Tuesday and the following Monday, all the exchanges were able to reopen. But, you know, that was, that was a, a, a commission-wide effort. And uh, I really served as a lobbyist to the mayor of New York at the time, who was Mayor Giuliani, uh, about getting water and electricity, et cetera, back to the exchanges as quickly as possible so they could operate. Um, they had not been operating. They didn't have the power or the water, which they needed. And of course, Vinnie Viola, who was a member of your Hall of Fame, was chairman of NYMEX at the time. And Vinnie's West Point training kicked in and Vinnie did an outstanding job of organizing the troop at NYMEX and getting the generators flown in to the, to the roof and actually ready to go on that following Monday. Well, I know you, you and Madge at the CFTC were very uh, insistent on making sure all staff were accounted for. They were in one of the towers, the CFTC's New York office. And uh, one of the things that came out of that was the CFTC seal. Can you give a little bit of a story around the seal and how that was found? Yes, because it was a, it was a couple of months after the attack when the seal was found. And um, I got a call from the, um, gosh, I can't even think of who, who it was from now, Walt. Uh, from one of the minor museums in, in New York, uh, whom was designated as a drop-off point to the workers if they found stuff. And so they called and told me that a worker had found our seal. And it was, it was actually bent and was covered in, in mud. And uh, he had taken it home and cleaned it enough where he figured out what it was and took it to the museum. And the museum called and wanted to know what I wanted to do with it. And uh, I asked them if they intended to display it. And they said no, uh, that it was going to go in storage. So I said, let me let me talk to some people before I give you a final answer. So I called the New York office and explained it all to them. And I told them if they wanted it, I would have a display built to put it in. Uh, of which they wanted the seal, and uh, we had display built, and then came up and dedicated it at the New York office uh, a couple of months after that. So it was definitely a, a touching part of of uh, 9/11 and finding the seal and getting it back in the New York office. Well, it was always a symbol of resilience to me that we were able to come back and under your leadership. You know, have the exchanges open up quickly, um, and then we weren't going to be in any way thwarted from you know uh, us as a nation moving forward. Um, so congratulations! I just love that story, and I'm glad you were able to to share it. Um, you know, I want to wrap up here with just a final thought. I mean, certainly you are continuing to serve our industry in your current capacity, but for a young person entering into our industry today. What sort of advice would you give a young person on how to succeed and in, in, in recommending whether to come into our industry? Well, I think internships is a is a key component of that. Uh, we we offer internships every every summer, and in fact, Charlie Thornton started with us in uh, in that same program, uh, and of course, he's just retired from or the CFTC. But, um, you know, it, it's a very difficult thing to learn. Uh, and and we've, we've hired these young interns. And then we've hired a couple that have stayed with us for some time. And then others that, that went on, like Charlie, who went to Senate Ag and then to, to the agency. Um, 
but hiring bright young people and then giving them access a bit at a time in terms of what we're doing and, and how we're doing it uh, is important. And, you know, like all of us, they slowly just pick it up uh, over time until they get to the point where they, where they do uh, understand. But I think that's the best way because there, there's no way to learn it unless you just grasp it and jump into it and uh, uh, and and then work to 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 learn what's going on. And you know, every day it's something different at the CFTC, and we try to expose our interns to as much of it as possible. Uh, we've got a young man at at the uh, at our office now that's just started uh, within the last month and. And uh, and he's bright and he's learning and and I think he'll do a good job as well. But I, I think uh, you know the internship would be my my suggestion. And I know you hire interns at FIA. Uh, there are a number of of groups within our industry that hire interns that help give young people starts. Now it's my it's my uh, advice that I give to young people as well is is to take on internships. I'm a product of an internship uh, with Senator Luger when I began my career, um, so it's a great way to learn an industry, learn a trade, um, and to also find out it whether you don't like it too. I mean, there's always that opportunity for a free um, a free chance to to experience something. So, Jim, I just want to say that you know as somebody who looked up to you and you are a mentor to me. It's just an honor to welcome you to the 2021 Hall of Fame for the futures industry. So thank you so much and congratulations. Thank you, Walt. It's a real honor for me, one that I really didn't think I was going to have the opportunity to appreciate. So when you called me the other day to, to give me the news, it was a, it was a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, welcome back to Boca 2021, and I want to congratulate Charles Lee as one of this year's inductees to the Futures Industry Hall of Fame. Uh, welcome to this year's Hall class, uh, Charles. Thank you very much, and uh, this is a, a great honor. I never thought uh, that would be part of this, and uh, so I truly appreciate it. So very happy to do this, and uh, but across the ocean in Hong Kong. Well, everybody knows your most recent um, you know, role as, as chief executive of the Hong Kong Exchange, but take us back a bit to how you started your career in financial services and how you ended up in the role in which you had so many achievements. Uh, thank you. Uh, well, you know, I, I was just basically wandering, you know, through times where in China, nothing really uh, was worth staying for. So I left China at, you know, 30 some years ago and not wanting to ever go back again. And, uh, and you know, so I was ready to do almost anything in America. Um, but eventually I found myself at Columbia Law School, graduated with a law degree, began practicing, um, you know, law on Wall Street. And then one thing led to another, another and I joined the bank. And uh, that was uh, a Merrill Lynch uh, at the very beginning. And then that started the journey of uh, back and forth between US, China, and the rest of the world. Well, looking back, um, you know, also everybody has role models or, or mentors that have helped them throughout their career. Is there one or two individuals that you would note or stand out to you that have helped advance you and, and be a leader in your career? Well, I think uh, um, Henry Kissinger has always been a role model in the sense that uh, he's the kind of thinker who can transcend history, transcend geography, transcend you know geopolitics. So my generation grew up when China was literally completely shut out of the world and they eventually become part of the world and now becoming a, you know, a very, very important part of the world and now become 
you know, in many, you know, in, in many dimensions, a source of conflict, you know, when, you know, China is becoming as important as it is today. So it is in that context, how to manage these two big superpowers. And obviously we try to do it in our own respective fields and, uh, you know, constantly thinking about how the barriers were broken and, you know, how the initial breakthrough came about. So yeah, and you know, I, I was uh, obviously also politically quite uh, interested um, in many of that uh, nuances and intrigues of uh, diplomacy and uh, international relations. So, in in some ways, that would be probably an area that I see him as a, a great role model. Well, you mentioned breaking down barriers, and certainly you did that at the Hong Kong Exchange as its chief executive. You know, looking back over your time uh, in that role, are there achievements that stand out to you as that you're most proud of? Um, yeah, I think uh, there are probably three things that I did at the uh, HEX uh, that I felt was really the three defining um <clears throat> You know, progress. Uh, you know, you, you know I, I would say um, one is connecting the water. Um, the next is really what I call change the fish, and uh, the third is really expanding our geographies and uh, and um, you know go into other asset classes. Um, in terms of connecting waters, you know, I think the the the, the, the most challenging, but also the most gratifying experience that I've had is to trying to connect. Um, a fundamentally different market structures of China with the rest of the um, you know global system, and with very very different fundamentally different operating systems and operating logic, and how to bring them together. That's really something that uh, was very very difficult to do. But the, you know the the most innovative element of that is to find a way to do net settlement. Essentially, China will operate on its own, and um, you know, we also obviously, thanks to the availability of electronic trading, so people can trade electronically across the border virtually, but settlement and a real money movement actually happens on a net basis. So as a result, over the last five years, for example, you know, somewhere around 45 trillion or 50 trillion in, you know, Hong Kong dollar worth of trading have taken place on Connect, um, but only about 2 trillion and that we hold each other's uh, market cap open positions. And it's actually net flow of funds was in the hundreds of billions rather than in the tens of trillions. So that sort of a net settlement allowed both, you know, market to remain largely impact intact rather than every transaction going back and forth through the border and then that then you start to allow price movement to actually impact each other but not necessarily the actual um you know water so i i used to say that it's almost like the ocean is connected everybody think it's all connected but if you look down there's a glass wall five meters below the below all the way down to the bottom of the ocean so it's all still divided but the top five meters of the water are completely flow. So water are able to flow back and forth. So it looks like even water and just completely connected, but it's only the net that is moving back and forth. That's the first one. The second um, is really that, you know, in Hong Kong, we tend to use to have very, very old traditional underlines and very few new economies. And um, so massive structure changes we have to take up and the big reforms on the listing regime. So ultimately resulting in us being able to accept massive numbers of uh, new economy listings with different kind of a governance structures, different new classes of shares, and also biotech companies and uh, life science companies. So now our market is fundamentally transformed. And uh, so we're, we're, we're very proud of it. The third key things that we did is really expand out of Hong Kong, expand out of equity. So that's the acquisition of the London Metro Exchange. And that really take us to the real futures, uh, you know, universe, exclusively futures there. And um, that, you know, make us into uh, a global company. 
Well, and there was a blockbuster acquisition um, and it's still talked about to this day. Um, so congratulations on all three of those amazing achievements. Um, you know, there is a, with technology now accessible to so many, um, there's a whole new generation of people interested in markets. And as you reflect on your career, what advice would you give to a young person that may be just starting their career in the financial services and, and what sort of things should they be thinking about? Yeah, I think uh, uh, the most important thing for the new generation is to understand the fundamentals of finance, but not be constrained by what currently regulates uh, um, or dominate financial services. Um, the two, uh, are, uh, you know, sometimes because, you know, the traditional, the, the earlier generations like my generation, we obviously not only are operating on a different technology platform and, uh, and foundation, but more importantly, uh, are constrained uh, or framed, you know, by what we know fundamentally as how money works. Money is in many ways like water and you need to respect it because uh, it will overwhelm you in ways and at times completely beyond your control. It looks completely harmless, but you know, um, when water wants to do harm and when you're not careful and when you're not managing it properly, it could be really uh, problematic. On the other hand though, in today's universe, so much digitalization has taken place, so much data, has been accumulated. Computing power has been so um, prevalent, and AI is now become the leading uh, element. Uh, you know, in how you know we trade. Um, the new generation will find themselves to be in a very, very different, uh, uh, different times. But sometimes they still need to understand that finance as money, when everybody's acting. Um, is something that's truly like water. It can be very, you know, gentle, nice, and uh, sweet like a rain, and you know, but it could also become massive tsunamis um, that will overwhelm, uh, you know, uh, you know, societies, uh, unlike what happened during the financial crisis. Um, but the China or Asian, particularly China, financial services is further defined and uh, characterized you know by the massive participation of individuals by by the fact that the traditional incumbent financial services are so inadequate as a result they are able to do things adopting new technologies adopting new operating systems and doing it in a very democratically available manner that their system is going to be very, very different from the rest of the rest of us. In many ways, it's much better, much easier, much cheaper, much more efficient. But on the other hand, we don't really know in the end when everybody's moving on that square. You know, as I used to say, um, you know, we Chinese need to really figure out how to take advantage of our differences but not being overwhelmed by it. You know, I, I always use the example of Times Square, Chinese, every New Year Eve, you have hundreds of thousand people drunk there, but you never have a stampede. It's because you have all the police putting all the, you know, little condorms people. So only a few hundred people in a big circle. It's like a sales. So you could do a lot of damage within your sales, but you won't really cause a massive uh, stampede. Whereas in China, we dance on Tiananmen Square, a million people dancing in one big flat level square. If something happens and people moving into one direction completely and you're not able to stop it, it could really you know, become an issue. And um, so we need to, you know, my entire career is about finding differences, swimming through differences and barriers, trying to break down barriers, but at the same time, understand the fundamental logic of different markets. And then when they do meet, sometimes they meet with wonders, sometimes they meet with disasters. And I just need to figure out, uh, you know, how to help manage that. 
Well, Charles, you have been such a, an important and colorful voice for our community during your time as, as chair of and uh, chief executive of the, the Hong Kong Exchange. And I just want to congratulate you and welcome you to this year's class of the Futures Industry Hall of Fame. Thank you again. Thank you. And it has been a great privilege, a great journey. And I look forward to continuing, um, you know, working together and uh, making our industry better and brighter in the future. Well, thank you. And we'll hopefully see you again uh, next year as well. Thank you. Looking forward to it very much. Thank you for listening to the first installment of our Hall of Fame podcast. We encourage you to listen to the two podcasts that follow. We thank SmartStream for their sponsorship, and we welcome your feedback, issues, and ideas at FIAspeaks at FIA.org. Thanks for listening. FIA Speaks is brought to you by the staff of the FIA. Steve Adamski is our executive producer. Cameron Lane is our technical producer, with additional technical support from Craig Richardson. We welcome your feedback on these podcasts at fiaspeaks at fia.org. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide investment, tax, business, legal or professional advice to any individual or entity. Unless specifically stated otherwise, neither FIA nor its members endorse, approve, recommend or certify any information, opinion, product, process, service, individual or entity presented or mentioned in this podcast. FIA makes no representations, warranties or guarantees as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the podcast's content. Reliance on the podcast content is done at your own risk. FIA disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special of consequential damages arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on or inability to use this podcast or its contents. Any commercial use, resale or redistribution of this podcast without the FIA's express written consent is prohibited. Copyright 2019 FIA, all rights reserved. For more information, visit FIA.org.